Good morning, and uh, as uh, Tanya uh, mentioned, we welcome here, if you're here in person, and if you're online, again, we welcome you, and we're glad that you could be with us this morning. It's just it's amazing to be able to stand and to worship. As Tanya said, some of the songs, the words in the songs are, are truths for us. They're not just words, they're truths for us of worship. So great to hear the band and to be able to be together to, to worship this morning. We're going to be continuing this morning in our uh, series, Spiritual Rhythms, and this morning we're going to look at what the Bible says about uh, confession. If you are from a, a Catholic background like me, you probably have memories of being a child in uh, confession. For, for us, when we were younger, our parents used to take us to confession on Saturdays in preparation for attending Mass and Communion uh, on Sunday. And so, you know, as you recall, we'd go into the little confessional box, kneel down, the priest would open up the little window, there was that shadowy figure kind of behind the screen, and I would confess my sins from the past week. Uh, I can remember sitting in the church waiting for my turn to go into the confessional and rehearsing what I was going to say when I went in there. Uh, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been one week since my last confession. I accuse myself of uh, disobeying my mother five times, which, which was an exaggeration, under, 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 an understatement to say the least. Stealing uh, 25 cents from the coin jar so I could get candy on the way home from school. Locking my brother out of the house cheating on a math test, and so on. And then the priest would assign uh, the penance, you know, five Hail Marys, one Our Father, act of contrition, and I was done for the week. And maybe that brings back memories for some of you. Uh, but whether or not you are from a Catholic background, we can all relate to confession as being an admission of something that we've done wrong. And surely none of us enjoys confessing that we've done something wrong. There's something that's built into our human nature that wants to be right. And when we're exposed, our first reaction is usually to deny or to cover ourselves. We may take what's a clear, like black and white situation and with some fancy talking, try to smooth over the situation, try to muddy it up a little bit, in an attempt to hide the fact that we've actually done something wrong. But this morning, we're going to take a, a fresh look at confession. And hopefully we come to see that rather than it being something that we dread, how in Christ confession is actually can be a freeing experience for us that we could live an honest and open life before God and also before each other. But before we uh, look at our text that Tanya read for us, I'd like to go to the very beginning of the Bible, into Genesis 3. And we're going to look at the very first account of sin that's recorded. And you're probably all very familiar with the story God told Adam that everything in the garden was permitted for him to have, but that from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he was not permitted to eat. 
And as you know, Eve was deceived by the serpent, and she ate from the fruit. She took some of the fruit, gave it to her husband, and so they both, and he ate, and so they both sinned against God. We're not going to focus this morning on their sin, but instead how Adam and Eve responded when they sinned. And as we do, I want to invite you uh, to think about yourself and to see how your behavior is, uh, is, is so typical of, I'm sorry, how Adam and Eve's behavior is so typical of the way that we also uh, behave when we have sinned against God. It's very tempting, again, for us to let our thoughts go towards someone else, so I, I encourage you to fight that temptation. And instead, as if kind of like looking in a mirror, that you would think about yourself as we look through these few passes and passages in Genesis. So we're going to read... Uh, verses 7 through 13 in Genesis. And as we do, I want to highlight three responses that Adam and Eve had as a result of their disobedience. The first is shame. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Up to this point in their lives, they hadn't been ashamed of the fact that they were naked. But now, after disobeying God, they've experienced shame for the very first time in their lives. And their shame causes them to try to cover this up. For the first time in their lives, there's something about Adam and Eve that they don't want other people to see. The second thing, they do is to hide from God. Verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve had lived their whole lives in a personal relationship with God. But now, after their sinning, their shame wants to make them avoid God. And if at all possible, even to try to hide from God. And lastly, when God confronts them about what they've done, they both try to justify themselves by shifting the blame, basically to make excuses for themselves. In verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Neither one of them takes responsibility for what they've done for what they've done. Adam shifts the blame to Eve. Eve shifts the blame over to the serpent. Genesis 3 here is a very interesting section of Scripture. And what at first glance looks like nothing more than a simple children's Bible story actually contains profoundly deep truths about mankind's fallen condition. And it's these events that happen in the garden that ultimately set the stage 
for God's ultimate plan of redemption. But this morning, we're not going to focus on anything other than the simple uh, response of Adam and Eve to their disobedience to God. First, they experience shame. Their shame causes them to hide from God. And then finally, when they're confronted about their sin, they make excuses and attempt to justify their wrongdoing. All of us who are followers of Christ know what God expects of us. But even though we may know it, and even though we may strive so much to live up to it, we will fall into sin. And when we do, our consciences will convict us, and those same sense of shame and remorse will build up within us. This is a, an experience that we can all, I think, relate to. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to compare how Adam and Eve responded to the shame they felt, and we're going to compare that to with how we as Christians should respond when we fall into sin. So with this as our backdrop, we're going to look at this morning's text that Tanya read for us from 1 John chapter 1 and uh, verses 5 through 10. And I want to start by drawing our attention to the verses 8 and 10, which I think are the key to understanding this passage. In verse 8, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. If our own lives are not proof enough for us, this morning's passage uh, in John says that we are sinners, and if we think otherwise, we're not being truthful. God's word testifies to this not only in 1 John, but Paul devotes entire chapters in Romans 7 to make this point, the Old Testament prophets, the Psalms, and even Jesus himself give testimony to the fact that every one of us, every person that has ever lived, fails and falls short of living up to the glory of God. The starting point of every relationship with God begins with the humble acknowledgement of our own failures to live up to his standards. Christian author and pastor John MacArthur says that the road to our spiritual maturity is paved with an awareness of our own wretchedness. Jesus could never get through to the religious leaders of his day because they lived under the, the deception that they were right before God. Do you remember the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to pray? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I tithe, I fast twice a week. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, 
God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Sinful pride is what prevented the Pharisee from being honest and seeing himself as a sinner. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And in case you think that he only struggled with the sins that he committed before he was a Christian, listen to what he says in Romans 7. Paul's deepest desire was to obey God, but his humanity kept causing him to fail. Excuse me. Okay, so I I apologize for that. So in in Romans 7.21, listen to what Paul says. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from, the body, from this body that is subject to death? And then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul admitted to the truth about himself, that he was a sinner and that he was in need of a deliverer. But because of Christ, Paul could come to terms with this very real tension in his life, that he was, at one hand, a sinner who failed to live up to God's standards, and yet, at the same time, that he could live in the truth that because of Christ's death on the cross, that God had accepted him, and that God wanted a relationship with him. Martin Luther summarized this by saying that we are simultaneously righteous and sinners, that we are simultaneously righteous and sinners. Rather than having his shame and the awareness of his sinfulness drive Paul away from God, Paul could draw near to God because of the deliverance that was his in Christ. This is so important for us because this is the heart of the gospel message. Christ died to make sinners righteous. Even in his failures, Paul could draw near to God. And this is available to each and every one of us who calls on Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. Now we look at verse 6. John writes, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Is John saying here that we have to be sinless in order to have a fellowship with God? Well, it can't mean that, right? Because we just saw that two verses that will follow, he'll point out that if we say that we're without sin, that we're liars. And this would also include, exclude Paul, because Paul himself said that he was a sinner. So what is John saying here? 
those of us who are in Christ, who are God's children and are filled with his spirit, we want to be right before God, want to be pleasing to him, to know him, to walk with him. We want to have an intimate relationship with him. We want to walk in the light. And though we may stumble and fall along the way, we don't want to walk in the darkness. We want to walk in the light. He goes on in verse 7 to say, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When we walk in the light, we live in complete transparency and honesty with ourselves and with others. There is no pretense before God. There's no pretense in our relationships. It's easy for us to be transparent about our accomplishments and about the things that we're proud of. But walking in the light also includes a transparency for those things that we're not so proud of, our weaknesses, our failures, sins. So what should we do? What should be our response when we sin? Look at verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the original language, the word confess means to say the same as or to speak the same thing. When we sin, God who sees all, God who knows all, knows that we've sinned. So when we confess, we're just simply agreeing with God. We're saying the same thing that God says. And when we confess, John says that he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So think about how freeing this is. We are sinners, and God knows that we're sinners. We don't have to lie or pretend. But because of Christ's work of redemption, we're free from condemnation, free from guilt, free to come to our Heavenly Father when we fail and confess our sins to him, knowing that he's faithful to forgive us. We don't have to hide from him like Adam and Eve who made coverings for their nakedness. But now God has provided his own covering for us through the work of Christ. And because of that, we can live in a relationship with our Heavenly Father who accepts us just as we are. And do you see how freeing that is? He accepts us just as we are. And this life of, of walking in the light also carries over into our personal relationships as well. Our lives should be marked with a humble authenticity, not with the pretense like that Pharisee who thought so highly of himself, but rather like the tax collector who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Our lives should be marked with humility. Sin sets up a barrier between us and God, but it also sets up a barrier between us and others. We're to confess our sins to God, our sinful thoughts to God, 
But if we've wronged another person, we're commanded to confess our wrongdoings to them and to ask for forgiveness. Remember Jesus' teaching when we're at the altar and there that we remember that a brother or a sister has something against us. We're to leave the gift at the altar and to go and to resolve the matter with our brother and then come and offer the gift. In his epistle, James writes, actually Tanya mentioned this in, in, in her, um, when she was speaking to us. James writes, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James makes a direct connection between confessing or speaking the truth about our sins with one another and the power of prayer. Our community groups are good starting places for us where we can live openly and honestly with one another about those areas that we struggle in and fall short. Ray Stedman was the pastor of Peninsula Bible Church for 40 years, and he was a major voice in the Christian church in the second half of the last century. Listen to what he says on this. He writes, It goes against our human nature to portray an image of oneself that is anything less than perfect. Many Christians fear that they will be rejected by others if they admit to faults. But nothing could be more destructive to Christian fellowship than the common practice today of pretending not to have problems. How wonderfully helpful it would be if a member of a family, preferably the father, would honestly admit in a gathering of fellow Christians that his family was going through difficulties in working out relationships with one another and needed very much their prayers and counsel this time of struggle. Members of this family would immediately find out two things. That every Christian in the meeting identified with the problem and held him in higher esteem than ever because of his honesty and forthrightness. And two, a wealth of helpful counsel would be open to him from those who had gone through similar struggles and had learned valuable lessons thereby. Further, the prayers of other Christians willing to help him bear his burdens would release great spiritual power in the situation. Stedman brings out for us that confession applies not only to our sin, but even to acknowledging failures and shortcomings that may not themselves be sinful. Our pride makes us want to portray this image that we have it all under control. We don't want our faults to be exposed. And even in the simple everyday things, when we're wrong and we've made a mistake, really rarely do we say, you know, you're right, I was wrong. Instead, we try to spin the conversation, dance around trying to hide our mistakes, or we make excuses as to why we were wrong rather than just leaving it at, I was wrong. James says 
that God's power is released in our earthly relationships when we confess to our weaknesses and the failures, and at times to confess our sins to one another. Does that mean that we should be confessing all of our sins to everyone in the church? I like what Warren Wearsby writes in his commentary on the letter of James. He says, we confess our sins first of all to the Lord, but we must also confess them to those who have been affected by them. We must never confess sin beyond the circle of that sin's influence. Private sin requires private confession. Public sin requires public confession. And then on the, on the flip side of confession, if we're the ones who've been wronged by someone, and they come to us and they confess to us that they've wronged us, we too should forgive them just as God in Christ has forgiven us. We are blessed with the freedom of, of, freedom of knowing that we can come to our Heavenly Father when we fail, and so Likewise, we too should exemplify that Christ-like lifestyle that makes others know that we too will extend grace, just as God's grace has been extended to us. So, I'd like to suggest just a few, just a few thoughts by way of uh, summary, and then we close. The Bible is given to us so that we can know God and that we can know his purposes for our lives. This is how we are transformed from our fallen, sinful nature to living a spiritual life that longs to become more and more like Christ. It's a lifelong process of putting off the old and putting on the new. And throughout this journey, we are certain to fall many, many times. God sees all. He knows that we're going to fall even before we fall. He knows all of our sins, even the ones we haven't committed yet. There's nothing hidden about us that would surprise God. Nothing. But even knowing all of this... He sent his son into the world to die on a cross, to pay for our debts, and to cleanse us from the consequences of all of these sins. This is not just a, a bunch of religious words all kind of scattered together to sound religious or pious. These are facts about a very real reality that can change our lives, that can bring freedom from guilt and shame, and a cleansing of, a con of our consciousness that can only be had through a relationship with Christ. When we sin, our conscience triggers feelings of shame and remorse, guilt, and our natural tendency is to want to avoid, hide, cover up. But you can't avoid God. You can't hide from God. He sees us before, during, and after we sin. He sees all. He knows all. 
Our relationship with God should be one of walking in the light. Confessing is simply saying what he already knows about us to be true. We're simply walking in the light. Shame shouldn't make us try to cover our sins. He has provided the covering already for us in Christ. Confession then becomes not an occasional activity that we schedule as a part of our Christian lives, but rather an ever-present heart attitude of authentic humility deep within us that lives in the constant awareness of our brokenness, but yet, at the same time, knowing that God has accepted us as his children through the grace that is ours in Christ. Shame and remorse that's brought about by our sins should drive us towards God so that we can confess to him. And when we do, John tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel message. Amen? When you came in, as Tanya mentioned, you received a Connect card. And on the card, um, there was a box that you can check that says Next Step Email. We would like to, in the, this week, send to you some additional thoughts, maybe some practical applications on confession. So just click that, and then you can drop it in the box. If you're online, there is a QR code on the bottom of your screen that you can scan. And again, we would send you more, more, more thoughts on confession. A lot to be said, way more that could be packed into this time this morning. So request that. Um, yes. At the end here, the prayer team will be up here. If anyone wants prayer, I will be here. I think some of the elders may also be here. Whether you need prayer, you want to discuss, talk about um, your relationship with Christ, there'll be people here after the service. Let's bow for a moment and then we'll pray. I've talked uh, quite a bit this morning about shame that comes when we do things that we know are wrong and that don't align with how God would want us to live our lives. Shame and remorse are indicators that God's Spirit is moving in our lives and working to make us more like Christ. If you're living a life that's contrary to what you know God expects of you, not experiencing these feelings of shame and remorse, it may be an indication that you're not a follower of Christ, that God's Spirit is not leading or controlling your life. For you to be forgiven and cleansed from your sins, for you to have the freedom and peace that we talked about this morning, to become a child of God, a member of his eternal kingdom, you have to personally accept what Jesus did for you on the cross. You have to make him the Lord of your life. 
Bible says, he that has the Son has life, he has not the Son has not life. But the wrath of God abides on him. I encourage you this morning that if you have never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, do so today. Forgiveness of your sins and the promise of eternal life is yours only through Jesus Christ. In your own time and in your own words, ask him to be the Lord of your life. Father, we thank you for this time of worship this morning. Thank, thank you for the, the songs that we sang of worship and praise to you. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit who instructs us. We ask that you would help us to become humble, authentic followers of Christ who walk in the light and the honesty of who we are in you. Help us to grow in a deeper understanding of who we are in Christ. Help us, Lord, to experience the freedom and the peace that we spoke of this morning that is ours by the redemption that you have provided for us through your Son, in whose name we pray this morning.